Hello, listeners. We're back with the Modernist Revival podcast after a brief winter hiatus to read a lecture today um, from French critical theorist Michel Foucault. This lecture, translated in French, the title is What is an Author, was originally delivered in French in, 16, in 1969 um, to the French Society of Philosophy. The essay lecture is in partial response to an essay by philosopher Roland Barthes titled The Death of the Author. Together with Barthes, Foucault in this essay becomes one of the founding members of the post-structuralist movement in literary criticism and theory. In this essay, Foucault foins, coins the phrase author function to describe a phenomenon that exists particularly in the Western imagination, whereby the author-creator figure comes to signify over and above it a text in and of itself. Throughout this truly brilliantly crafted lecture, Foucault dem demonstrates the inherently problematic nature of raising an author to what becomes essentially a godlike status. Ultimately, this lecture fits within Foucault's overarching philosophical and theoretical emphasis on biopolitics. As a relatively egalitarian leaning, though not entirely Marxist project, the biopolitical movement and its thinkers tend to emphasize a kind of individual anonymity in favor of collective identity and action. This process of de-individuation can look a lot like conformity and under the right or wrong regimes of power, that is precisely what it can and does become. Biopolitical thinkers of whom Foucault is one of the original visionaries work towards demonstrating the dangers of totalitarianism on both the right and the left. So that's just to give um, an idea of the bigger picture of Foucault's project. In terms of literary criticism, which is one field of interest for Foucault out of a vast array that he's concerned with, um, the lecture, What is an Author?, works to encourage us to question whether or not an author's biographical details and experiences are truly essential and relevant to interpretation of their work, fictional, autobiographical, philosophical, or otherwise. Down to the most mundane pieces of writing, such as grocery and to-do lists. As a partial response to criticism Foucault received for his own theoretical explorations of epistemology in the order of things, Foucault offers up himself and certain points he makes in his writing to prove a point that the author as individual can often interrupt, interrupt and supersede a pure discussion of thought and discursive thought in general. In this way, this lecture is incredibly performative. 
In some ways, Foucault is critiquing his own work to demonstrate the transformative power and impulse of critical theory. In other ways, he is equivocating for himself, essentially admitting that he too is only human and can make mistakes and have omissions in his writing. And then he works to fill in these so-called gaps in his epistemological foundation um, in and through the formulation of an exploration of the author function figure. Essentially, Foucault uses the author function to back up a defense of his explorations of Marx, um, where critics claimed he had not done a thorough enough job discussing Marx and other key thinkers in relation to egalitarian thought. In response to this, Foucault says essentially that he didn't intend to discuss individual authors, but rather the discourse itself, discourse being discussion through writing, particularly academic, theoretical, and philosophical writing. Foucault is a philosopher first and foremost, and ultimately his basis is in French existentialist thought. This philosophical and theoretical tradition comes naturally attached to very complex French vocabulary that doesn't always lend itself easily to French translation and even comprehension. So there are pockets of this essay that are pretty dense with academic jargon. And I'll work, work to unpack some of these moments as I'm reading. So I'll pause to offer some explanation at times that I think it might be useful for the audience, keeping in mind that not, every, not all of our listeners um, will be familiar with some of these terms. So just to summarize briefly the overall thesis Foucault comes to, because I think it will help create a roadmap for understanding as I'm reading. Foucault is concerned with the relationship between an author and a text, specifically the manner in which a text apparently points to the figure of the author who is outside of the text um, and yet somehow precedes and shapes interpretation of any given text. To arrive at this point, Foucault asks an iconic question. What does it matter who is speaking? In part, this question serves to encourage thought-provoking discussion about the material effects authorship and authorial presence has on any given work of literature. Ultimately, Foucault determines that the writing itself or the discourse is more important than the person doing the writing, the author. The author function is problematic for Foucault in that it interrupts and influences discourse in particular ways that are disruptive to true theoretical exploration and freedom of thought. This seems simple and basic enough, but there is actually much debate about this among literary and political theorists. In my classes at Cornell University, I teach this essay alongside the Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman and Babylon Revisited by F. Scott Fitzgerald, 
in order to demonstrate through the student's own initial interpretations of the stories the problematic nature of the author function. So in a classroom setting, for either Charlotte Perkins Gilman or F. Scott Fitzgerald, students tend to bring to the table knowledge that Charlotte Perkins Gilman eventually killed herself and during her life was treated for depression with the rest cure, which happens to be the subject of the yellow wallpaper. And then in the case of F. Scott Fitzgerald, students often bring to the table knowledge that he, he was a, an author of the jazz age and his life was full of um, glitz, glamour, gin, whiskey, dancing, and that he wrote about that in The Great Gatsby, which is a text that, you know, people most often think about when they think of F. Scott Fitzgerald. They don't think about necessarily his life after the stock market crash of 1929, which is the subject of Babylon Revisited. Um, so in some ways, not knowing the details of the Great Depression and bringing that to the table kind of creates an interesting need for students to think deeper about the story. So there's kind of an, a reverse effect to what happens um, in my own experience teaching with Fitzgerald and Gilman. So I kind of need to remind the students as Babylon Revisited is set in Paris that this story is also looking at hardships that Americans, even Americans living abroad, faced in that period after the stock market crash um, of 1929 to the 19, early 1940s or so, um, and even post-World War II, where America was deeply in a depressed economic state. All right, so I think that is enough initial contextualization for what is an author. So I'm going to go ahead and get started reading. And I will say a note on pronouns used throughout. The French language is a little masculine heavy um, with the gendering of their, the nouns. And anyone who um, speaks French or has spoken any French will understand what I'm talking about. Um, and so the masculine pronoun is used throughout this translation and just so I'm not constantly having to correct myself, I'm going to stick with the pronoun. I understand that that's problematic and if I were translating this essay, I would be a little more gender neutral with things, but I'm reading um, Richard Howard's translation um, and that was not the decision that was made. Um, all right, so without further ado, here is What is an Author by Michel Foucault. In proposing this slightly odd question, I am conscious of the need for an explanation. To this day, the author remains an open question both re with respect to its general function within discourse and in my own writings. That is, this question permits me to return to certain aspects of my own work, which now appear ill-advised and misleading. In this regard, I wish to propose a necessary criticism and reevaluation. For instance, 
My objective in the order of things had been to analyze verbal clusters and discursive layers, which fall outside the familiar categories of a book, a work, or an author. But while I considered natural history, the analysis of wealth, and political economy in general terms, I neglected a similar analysis of the author and his works. It is perhaps due to this omission that I employed the names of authors throughout this book in a naive and often crude fashion. I spoke of Buffon, Cuvier, Ricardo, and others as well, but failed to realize that I had allowed their names to function ambiguously. This has proved an embarrassment to me in that my oversight has served to raise two pertinent objections. It was argued that I had not properly described Buffon or his work and that my handling of Marx was pitifully inadequate in terms of the totality of his thought. Although these objections were obviously justified, they ignored the task I had set myself. I had no intention of describing Buffon or Marx or of reproducing their statements or implicit meanings, but simply stated, I wanted to locate the rules that formed a certain number of concepts and theoretical relationships in their works. In addition, it was argued that I had created monstrous families by bringing together names as disparate as Buffon and Linnaeus, or placing Cuvier next to, to Darwin in defiance of the most readily observable family resemblances and natural ties. This objection also seems inappropriate since I had never tried to establish a genealogical table of exceptional individuals, nor was I concerned in forming an intellectual daguerreotype of the scholar or naturalist of the 17th and 18th century. In fact, I had no intention of forming any family, whether holy or perverse. On the contrary, I wanted to determine a much more modest task, the functional conditions of specific discursive practices. And so here in this opening, you can see how rhetorically Foucault is saying his sort of equivocating for himself, right? He acknowledges the criticism he's received for his initial essays on um, discussing the discursive thought formations that he is concerned with in the order of things. Um, people saying that he shouldn't necessarily be talking about certain authors in conversation with each other in certain ways. And he kind of takes a second to ask us to consider the larger picture of what he's talking about. And you don't necessarily have to have read The Order of Things to pick up on the fact that Foucault's saying there's a difference between writing that people have done and the individuals doing the writing. And saying that he wants to focus on the discursive practices, the writing itself. All right, so returning to the text. Then why did I use the names of authors in the order of things? Why not avoid their use altogether? Or short of that, why not define the manner in which they were used? These questions appear fully justified, and I have tried to gauge their implications and consequences in a book that will appear shortly. 
And that book eventually becomes The Order of Things, An Archaeology of Human Knowledge. These questions have determined my effort to situate comprehensive discursive units, such as natural history or political economy, and to establish the methods and instruments for delimiting, analyzing, and describing these unities. Nevertheless, as a privileged moment of individualization in the history of ideas, knowledge, and literature, or in the history of philosophy and science, the question of the author demands a more direct response. Even now, when we study the history of a concept, a literary genre, or a branch of philosophy, these concerns assume a relatively weak and secondary position in relation to the solid and fundamental role of an author and his works. For the purpose of this paper, I will set aside a socio-historical analysis of the author as an individual and the numerous questions that deserve attention in this context. How the author was individualized in a culture such as ours, the status we have given the author, for instance, when we began our research into authenticity and attribution, the systems of valorization in which he was included, or the moment when the stories of heroes gave way to an author's biography. The conditions that fostered the formulation of the fundamental critical category of the man and his, the man and his work. For the time being, I wish to restrict myself to the singular relationship that holds between an author and a text, the manner in which a text apparently points to this figure who is outside and precedes it. Beckett supplies a direction. What matter who's speaking? Someone said, what matter who's speaking? In an indifference such as this, we must recognize one of the fundamental ethical principles of contemporary writing. It is not simply ethical because it characterizes our way of speaking and writing, but because it stands as an imminent rule endlessly adopted and yet never fully applied. As a principle, it dominates writing as an ongoing practice and slights our customary attention to the finished product. For the sake of illustration, we need only consider two of its major themes. First, the writing of our day has freed itself from the necessity of expression. It only refers to itself yet it is not restricted to the confines of interiority. On the contrary, we recognize it in its exterior deployment. This reversal transforms writing into an interplay of signs regulated less by the content it signifies than by the very nature of the signifier. Moreover, it implies an action that is always testing the limits of its regularity, transgressing and reversing in order that it accepts and manipulates. Writing unfolds like a game that inevitably moves beyond its own rules and finally leaves them behind. Thus, the essential basis of this writing is not the exalted emotions related to the act of composition or the insertion of a subject into language. Rather, it is primarily concerned with creating an opening where the writing subject endlessly disappears. So here, 
Foucault is playing with language. He's presenting himself as a writer, talking about writing, interested in writing as an act, as a practice, and as an art form through which we can explore questions and concepts and language itself. The second theme is even more familiar. It is the kinship between writing and death. This relationship inverts the age-old conception of Greek narration or epic, which was designed to guarantee the immortality of a hero. The hero accepted an early death because his life, consecrated and magnified by death, passed into immortality and the narrative redeemed his acceptance of death. In a different sense, Arabic stories and the Arabian Nights in particular had as their motivation, their theme and pretext, this strategy for defeating death. Storytellers continued their narratives late into the night to forestall death and to delay the inevitable moment when everyone must fall silent. Shadarazade's story, in a desperate inversion of murder, it is the effort throughout all those nights to exclude death from the circle of existence. This conception of a spoken or written narrative as a protection against death has been transformed by our culture. Writing is now linked to sacrifice and to the sacrifice of life itself. It is a voluntary obliteration of the self that does not require representation in books because it takes place in the everyday existence of the writer. Where a work had the duty of creating immortality, it now attains the right to kill, to become the murderer of its author. So Foucault is pinpointing a shift in the way we talk about writing. He's kind of critiquing the way that in popular culture, we talk about writers and writing. He says, in the ancient times, writers were anonymous, the epics, Homer, Homer, the blind poet, Virgil. Um, we don't know where their narratives began. The oral tradition presented authorship in a different way. And in the modern age, we see a shift to almost an obsession with the identity of the author and, and an attribution of authorship to text to what Foucault is saying, a detriment to looking at discourse as a whole. In some ways, I think this way of thinking about authorship is really helpful and influential. And in other ways, I think Foucault maybe takes it a little too far here. I think there's a happy medium that we can use in particularly in my field as a literary critic and a, a social theorist who looks at the world and life through literature. I think there's a, a middle ground to be got at, but I use this essay to encourage students to not pay so much attention to the bio biographical details of an author when looking at a work of literature. Flaubert, Proust, and Kafka are obvious examples of this reversal, Foucault says. And I'm using as examples Gilman and Fitzgerald. In addition, we find the link between writing and death 
manifested in the total effacement of the individual characteristics of the writer. The quibbling and confrontations that a writer generates between himself and his text cancel out the signs of his particular individuality. If we wish to know the writer in our day, it will be through the singularity of his absence and in his link to death which has transformed him into a victim of his own writing. While all of this is familiar in philosophy as in literary criticism, I am not certain that the consequences derived from the disappearance or death of the author have been fully explored or that the importance of this event has been appreciated. To be specific, it seems to me that the themes destined to replace the privileged position accorded to the author have merely served to arrest the possibility of genuine change. Of these, I will examine two that seem particularly important. To begin with, the thesis concerning a work. It has been understood that the task of criticism is not to reestablish the ties between an author and his work, or to reconstitute an author's thought and experience through his works, and further, that criticism should concern itself with the structures of a work, its archi architectonic forms, which are studied for their intrinsic and internal relationships. Yet what of a context that questions the concept of a work? What, in short, is the, the strange unit designated by the term work? What is necessary to its composition if a work is not something written by a person called an author? Difficulties arise on all sides if we raise the question in this way. If an individual is not an author, what are we to make of those things he has written or said, left among his papers or communicated to others? Is this not properly a work? What for instance, were de Sade's papers before he was consecrated as an author. Little more, perhaps, than rolls of paper on which he endlessly unraveled his fantasies while in prison. Assuming that we are dealing with an author, is everything he wrote and said, everything he left behind, to be included in his work? This problem is both theoretical and practical. If we wish to publish the complete works of Nietzsche, for example, where do we draw the line? Certainly everything must be published, but can we agree on what everything means? We will, of course, include everything that Nietzsche himself published, along with the drafts of his works, his plans for aphorisms, his marginal notations and corrections, but what if, in a notebook filled with aphorisms, we find a reference a reminder of an appointment, an address, or a laundry bill. Should this be included in his works? Why not? These practical considerations are endless once we consider how a work can be extracted from the millions of traces left by an individual after his death. Plainly, we lack a theory to encompass the questions generated by a work and the empirical activity of those who naively undertake the publication of the complete works of an author often suffers from the absence of this framework. Yet more questions arise. 
Can we say that the Arabian Nights and Stromates of Clement of Alexandria or the lives of Diogenes Laertes constitute works? Such questions only begin to suggest the range of our difficulties, and if some have found it convenient to bypass the individuality of the writer or his status as an author to concentrate on a work, they have failed to appreciate the equally problematic nature of the word work and the unity it designates. I think I butchered the pronunciation of some of the author names in that paragraph, and I'm sorry, um, but you get the point, right? So Foucault is saying, what is a work? What is an author in relation to their work when the author has passed away and we're going through the archives? What are we to determine to be a work of literature, philosophy, etc.? Another thesis has detained us from taking full measure of the author's disappearance. It avoids confronting the specific event that makes it possible and, in subtle ways, continues to preserve the existence of the author. This is the notion of ecriture. Strictly speaking, it should allow us not only to circumvent references to an author, but to situate his recent absence. The conception of ecriture, as currently employed, is concerned with neither the act of writing nor the indications as symptoms or signs within a text of an author's meaning. Rather, it stands for a remarkably profound attempt to elaborate the conditions of any text, both the conditions of its spatial dispersion and its temporal deployment. It appears, however, that this concept, as currently employed, has merely transposed the empirical characteristics of an author to a transcendental anonymity. The extremely visible signs of the author's empirical activity are effaced to allow the play in parallel or opposition of religious and critical modes of characterization. In granting a primordial status to writing, do we not, in effect, simply reinscribe in transcendental terms the theological affirmations of its sacred origin or a critical belief in its creative nature. To say that writing, in terms of the particular history it made possible, is subjected to forgetfulness and repression, is this not to reintrodu reintroduce in transcendental terms the religious principle of hidden meanings which require interpretation and the critical assumption of implicit significations, silent purposes, and obscure contents which give rise to commentary. Finally, is not the conception of writing as absence a transposition into transcendental terms of the religious belief in a fixed and continuous tradition or the aesthetic principle that proclaims the survival of the work as a kind of enigmatic supplement of the author beyond his own death. Foucault is playing a little bit here with concepts put in place by um, French existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre 
in his transcendence of the ego. So he's playing with the concept of total anonymity to a certain extent, existing as writing as something that is a thing that people participate in when they participate in discursive thought and write those thoughts down. And that, but that individuation of the author creates a kind of mortality associated both with the writing and the author itself, whereby the author in signifying in and for the text becomes immortal through the literary text. And so he's gesturing to authors that we have immortalized, such as Nietzsche, Proust, uh, the Marquis de Sade, um, to demonstrate practically how this has been done. And that he calls, and the, the French uh, literary critics have called écriture. This conception of écriture sustains the privileges of the author through the safeguard of the a priori. The play of representations that formed a particular image of the author is extended within a gray neutrality. The disappearance of the author since Mallarmé, an event of our time, is held in check by the transcendental. Is it not necessary to draw a line between those who believe that we can continue to situate our present discontinuities within the historical and transcendental tradition of the 19th century and those who are making a great effort to liberate themselves once and for all from this conceptual framework. It is obviously insufficient to repeat empty slogans. The author has disappeared. God and man died a common death. Rather, we should re-examine the empty space left by the author's disappearance. We should attentively observe along its gaps and fault lines, its new demarcations and the reapportionment of this void. We should await the fluid functions released by this disappearance. In this context, we can briefly consider the problems that arise in the use of an author's name. What is the name of an author? How does it function? Far from offering a solution, I will attempt to indicate some of the difficulties related to these questions. The name of an author poses all the problems related to the category of the proper name. Here I am referring to the work of John Searle, among others. Obviously not a pure and simple reference, the proper name, and the author's name as well, has other than indicative functions. It is more than a gesture, a finger pointed at someone. It is, to a certain extent, the equivalent of a description. When we say Aristotle, we are using a word that means one or a series of definite descriptions of the type, the author of the analytics or the founder of ontology and so forth. Furthermore, a proper name has other functions than that of signification. 
When we discover that Rimbaud has not written La Chasse Spirituelle, we cannot maintain that the meaning of the proper name or this author's name has been authored, altered. Sorry. The proper name and the name of an author oscillate between the poles of description and designation, and granting that they are linked to what they name, they are not totally determined either by their descriptive or de designative functions. Yet, and it is here that the specific difficulties attending an author's name appear, the link between a proper name and the individual being named, and the link between an author's name and that which it names, are not isomorphous and do not function in the same way, and these differences re require clarification. So, the author as a proper name, as a label, and the individual aren't the same and we shouldn't consider them to be the same is what Foucault is advocating for. It's kind of like, say, a division between the personal and the public life of the author. To learn, for example, that Pierre Dupont does not have blue eyes, does not live in Paris, and is not a doctor, does not invalidate the fact that the name Pierre Dupont continues to refer to the same person. There has been no modification of the designation that links the name to the person. With the name of an author, however, the problems are far more complex. The disclosure that Shakespeare was not born in the house that tourists now visit would not modify the functioning of the author's name, but if it were proved that he had not written the sonnets that we attribute to him, this would constitute a significant change and affect the manner in which the author's name functions. Moreover, if we establish that Shakespeare wrote Bacon's Organon, and that the same author was responsible for both the works of Shakespeare and those of Bacon, we would have introduced a third type of alteration which completely modifies the functioning of the author's name. Consequently, the name of an author is not precisely a proper name among others. So you can see what Foucault is getting at here with these examples, right? The name of an author when it is an author and not just an individual comes attached to a body of work that we attribute to that author and then the author somehow becomes that body of work because of its influence, its impact on discourse. Many other factors sustain this paradoxical singularity of the name of an author. It is altogether different to maintain that Pierre Dupont does not exist and that Homer or Hermes Trismegiste have never existed. I butcher author names, I'm sorry. While the first negation merely implies that there is no one by the name of Pierre Dupont, the second indicates that several individuals have been referred to by one name or that the real author possessed none of the traits traditionally associated with Homer, Homer or Hermes. Neither is, the same, is it the same thing to say that Jacques Durand 
nor Pierre Dupont is the real name of X, and that Stendhal's name was Henri Bayel. We could also examine the function and meaning of such statements as Bourbaki is this or that person, or Victor Amita, Cleomachus, Anticleomachus, Frater Taciturnus, Constantine, Constantinus, all of these are Kierkegaard. So you see what Foucault is doing with these proliferation of author names. There's almost an arbitrary list um, and then an attribution. He's playing with the concept of identity versus discourse, working towards an advocation for anonymity to a certain extent, or at least a depletion of the way that we tend to privilege biography and authorship. These differences indicate that an author's name is not simply an element of speech as a subject, a complement, or an element that could be replaced by a proper a pronoun or other parts of speech. Its presence is functional in that it serves as a means of classification. A name can group together a number of texts and thus differentiate them from others. A name also establishes different forms of relationships among texts. Neither Hermes nor Hippocrates existed in the sense that we can say Balzac existed, but the fact that a number of texts were attached to a single name implies that relationships of homogeneity, filiation, reciprocal explanation, authentication, or of common utilization were established among them. Finally, the author's name characterizes a particular manner of existence of discourse. Discourse that possesses an author's name is not to be immediately consumed and forgotten. Neither is it accorded the momentary attention given to ordinary fleeting words Rather, its status and its manner of reception are regulated by the culture in which it circulates. We can conclude that unlike a proper name which moves from the interior of a discourse to the real person outside who produced it, the name of the author remains at the contours of texts, separating one from the other, defining their form and characterizing their mode of existence. It points to the existence of certain groups of discourse and refers to the status of this discourse within a society and culture. The author's name is not a function of a man's civil status, nor is it fictional. It is situated in the breach among the discontinuities which give rise to new groups of discourse and their singular mode of existence. Consequently, we can say that in our culture, the name of an author is a variable that accompanies only certain texts to the exclusion of others. A private letter may have a signatory, but it does not have an author. A contract can have an underwriter, but not an author. And similarly, an anonymous poster attached to a wall may have a writer, but he cannot be an author. In this sense, the function of an author is to characterize the existence, circulation, and operation of certain discourses within society. So Foucault is gesturing towards a hierarchy with which we use the label author and attach a person to a piece of writing as an author. 
this helps in things like literary criticism to allow us to demarcate a set of texts which we classify as belonging to the literary canon, right? So there are certain authors who are deemed canonical and we use those canonical authors in some ways to be able to broadly talk about a genre of literature, a literary movement, etc. I'm I'm interested in my own work and the way that I teach Foucault in my classes is within the field of modernist and sometimes postmodern literature, art and film. And so I use Foucault to place pressure on the ways in which in popular culture and popular literature, we over fetishize authors, particularly canonical authors. So I'm hoping through a renewed use of Foucauldian logic surrounding literary criticism and theory to reshape and reframe some of the texts that we have in the past viewed as canonical and at times to a detriment um, to the study of literature and other texts which we dismiss as being outside of the canon. In dealing with the author as a function of discourse, we must consider the characteristics of a discourse that support this use and determine its difference from other discourses. If we limit our remarks to only those books or texts with authors, we can isolate four different features. First, they are objects of appropriation. The form of property they have become is of a particular type whose legal codification was accomplished some years ago. It is important to notice as well that its status as property is historically secondary to the penal code controlling its appropriation. Speeches and books were assigned real authors other than mythical or important religious figures only when the author became subject to punishment and to the extent that his, this, his discourse was considered transgressive. In our culture, undoubtedly in others as well, discourse was not originally a thing, a product, or a possession, but an action situated in a bipolar field of sacred and profane, lawful and unlawful, religious and blasphemous. It was a gesture charged with risks long before it became a possession caught in a circuit of property values. So Foucault is designating the history of individuation of authorship with the history of suppression of public writing and public speech acts. Foucault is always concerned with figures like the Marquis de Sade, who um, was uh, arrested for uh, indecency and whose writings have formed the basis of sadomasochism in literature and art in a lot of ways. He, along with um, Leopold von Sacher-Massoch, form 
uh, the sort of origins of that genre of writing. It was a gesture charged with risks long be before it became a possession caught in a circuity of property and values. But it was at the moment when a system of ownership and strict copyright rules were established toward the end of the 18th and beginning of the 19th century that the transgressive prop properties always intrinsic to the act of writing became the forceful imperative of literature. I copyright this material. I claim ownership of this material, however scandalous. It is always going to be attached to my name. If it is to be made public in print, if it is to be shared as writing and thought should be shared, I must assert that I am the author. It is as if the author, at the moment he was accepted into the social order of property which governs our culture, was compensating for his new status by re reviving the older bipolar field of discourse in a systematic practice of transgression and by restoring the danger of writing, which on another side had been conferred the benefits of property. Secondly, the author function is not universal or constant in all discourse. Even within our civilization, the same types of texts have not always required authors. There was a time when those texts, which we now call literary stories, folk tales, epics, and tragedies, etc., were accepted, circulated, and valorized without any question about the identity of their author. Their anonymity was ignored because their real or supposed age was a sufficient guarantee of their authenticity. Texts, however, that we now call scientific, dealing with cosmology and the heavens, medicine or illness, the natural sciences or geography, were only considered truthful during the Middle Ages if the name of the author was indicated. Statements on the order of Hippocrates or Pliny tells us that were not merely formulas for an argument based on authority, they marked a proven discourse in the 17th and 18th centuries, a totally new conception was developed when scientific texts were accepted on their own merits and positioned within an, an anonymous and coherent conceptual system of established truths and methods of verification. Authentication no longer required reference to the individual who had produced them. The role of the author disappeared as an index of truthfulness, and where it remained as an inventor's name, it was merely to denote a specific theorem or proposition, a strange effect, a property, a body, a group of elements, or pathological syndrome. At the same time, however, literary discourse was acceptable only if it carried an author's name. Every text of poetry or fiction was obliged to state its author and the date, place, and circumstance of its writing. The meaning and value attributed to the text depended on this information. If by accident or design a text was presented anonymously, every effort was made to locate its author. Literary anonymity was of interest only as a puzzle to be solved as in our day Literary works are totally dominated by the sovereignty of the author. 
Undoubtedly, these remarks are far too categorical. Criticism has been concerned for some time now with aspects of a text not fully dependent on the notion of an individual creator. Studies of genre or the analysis of recurring textual motifs and their variations from a norm other than the author. Furthermore, where in mathematics the author has become little more than a handy reference for a particular theorem or group of propositions, the reference to an author in biology and medicine, or the date of his research, has substantially different bearing. This latter reference, more than simply indicating the source or information, attests to the reliability of the evidence, since it entails an appreciation of the techniques and experimental materials available at a given time and in the particular laboratory. So this is a really important point Foucault is making about the problem of historicism and literary historicism, which kind of entails a selective reasoning. Um, so there's a branch of literary criticism, which I admire and respect and participate in, called literary historicism. And the buzz phrase is always historicize, right? Always think about a text in conversation with the historical background and details of when the text was produced. And this allows us to put in context a larger conversation around a text of literature to help us derive meaning out of the connotations that allowed it to come into being. And that is how a text and studying a text participates in discourse. However, Foucault is saying that there's always something missing, right? There's always, um, discourse continues to grow. So when a piece of writing was produced, however influential it might be, there is going to be gaps in that piece of writing because there were gaps in discourse. That text contributed to discourse and now later texts must build on that discourse. And so critique always has to happen as new texts are produced. So discourse must always be referring back to itself in order to be able to grow and develop. The third point concerning this author function is that it is not formed spontaneously through the simple attribution of a discourse to an individual. It results from a complex operation whose purpose is to construct the rational entity we call an author. Undoubtedly, this construction is assigned a realistic dimension as we speak of an individual's profundity or creative power, his intentions or the original inspirations manifested in writing. Nevertheless, these aspects of an individual which we designate as an author or which compromise an individual as an author are projections in terms always more or less psychological of our way of handling texts. In the comparisons we make, the traits we extract as pertinent, the continuities we assign, or the exclusions we practice, in addition, all these operations vary according to the period and the form of discourse concerned. A philosopher and a poet are not constructed in the same manner, and the author of an 18th century novel was formed differently from the modern novelist. 
there are nevertheless trans-historical constants in the rules that govern the construction of an author. In literary criticism, for example, the traditional methods for defining an author, or rather for determining the configuration of the author from existing texts, derive in large part from those used in the Christian tradition to authenticate or to reject the particular texts in its possession. Modern criticism in its desire to recover the author from a work employs devices strongly reminiscent of Christian exegesis when it wished to prove the value of a text by ascertaining the holiness of its author. In De Viris Illustribus, St. Jerome maintains that homonymy is not proof of the common authorship of several works, since many individuals could have the same name, or someone could have perversely appropriated another's name. The name, as an individual mark, is not sufficient as it relates to a textual tradition. How, then, can several texts, texts be attributed to an individual author? What norms related to the function of the author will disclose the involvement of several authors? According to St. Jerome, there are four criteria. The texts that must be eliminated from the list of works attributed to a single author are those inferior to the others, thus the author is defined as a standard level of quality. Those whose ideas conflict with the doctrine expressed in the others, here the author is defined as a certain field of conceptual or theoretical coherence. Those written in a different style and containing words and phrases not ordinarily found in the other works, where the author is seen as a stylistic uniformity. And those referring to events or historical figures subsequent to the death of the author, the author is thus a definite historical figure in which a series of events converge. So Foucault is outlining the formula St. Jerome set up for how we determine canonical texts versus non-canonical texts. He's talking about this as something that pertains particularly to the Christian tradition, which is significant socially because this is how certain books of the Bible became deemed apocryphal. And this is how religions came to distinguish themselves from one another. The Catholic faith, for instance, has more biblical texts that it considers canonical than the Christian non-denominational faith, which includes branches of Protestantism that to a greater or lesser extent rely only on the Old and the New Testament and sometimes only on the New Testament as a basis of their faith. This has been the subject of a lot of political, social, and cultural unrest globally. And so this is a significant um, debate socially, worldwide, globally. And also when you get down to the nitty gritty in a more profane, secular way, how we talk about, discuss, and enjoy popular cultural materials as well.
Although modern criticism does not appear to have these same suspicions concerning authentication, its strategies for defining the author present striking similarities. The author explains the presence of certain events within a text, as well as their transformations, distortions, and their various modifications. And this through an author's biography or by reference to his particular point of view in the analysis of his social preferences and his position within a class or by delineating his fundamental objectives. The author also constitutes a principle of unity in writing where any unevenness of production is ascribed to changes caused by evolution, maturation, or outside influence. In addition, the author serves to neutralize the contradictions that are found in a series of texts. Governing this function is the belief that there must be, at a particular level of an author's thought, of his conscious or unconscious desire, a point where contradictions are resolved, where the incompatible elements can be shown to relate to one another or to cohere around a fundamental and originating contradiction. Finally, the author is a particular source of expression who in more or less finished forms is manifested equally well and with similar validity in a text, in letters, fragments, drafts, and so forth. Thus, even while St. Jerome's four principles of authenticity might seem largely inadequate to modern critics, they nevertheless define the critical modalities now used to display the functions of the author. However, it would be false to consider the function of the author as a pure and simple reconstruction after the fact of a text given as passive material, since a text always bears a number of signs that refer to the author. Well known to, the, to grammarians, these textual signs are personal pronouns, adverbs of time and place, and the conjugation of verbs. But it is important to note that these elements have a different bearing on texts with an author and those without one. In the latter, these shifters refer to a real speaker and to an actual dyadic situation, with certain exceptions, such as the case of indirect speech in the first person. When discourse is linked to an author, however, the role of shifters is more complex and variable. It is well known that in a novel narrated in the first person, neither the first person pronoun, the present indicative tense, nor for that matter, its signs of localization refer directly to the writer, either to the time when he wrote or the specific act of writing. Rather, they stand for a second self whose similarity to the author is never fixed and undergoes considerable alteration within the course of a single book. It would be as false to seek the author in relation to the actual writer as to the fictional narrator. The author function arises out of their scission in the division and distance of the two. One might object that this phenomenon only applies to novels or poetry, to a context of quasi-discourse, but in fact all discourse that supports this author function is characterized by this plurality of egos. In a mathematical treatise, the ego who indicates the circumstances of composition in the preface 
is not identical either in terms of his position or his function to the I who concludes a demonstration within the body of Christ. So I said early on that this essay is steeped in the existentialist tradition of Jean-Paul Sartre. And so here, Foucault is talking about the author the way that Sartre talks about the self as something that is ever-changing, always gaining new experiences, shifting day to day, never the same at each moment, because discourse always grows, and so authorship always evolves. The former implies a unique individual who at a given time and place succeeded in completing a project, the stagnate author, whereas the latter indicates an instance and plan of demonstration that anyone could perform, provided the same set of axioms, preliminary operations, and an identical set of symbols were used. So when you think of the author as evolutionary, anonymity, and proliferating possibility result. And Foucault thinks that's a better way. Well, it's hard to make that kind of valorizing statement, but it's in favor of the latter. It is also possible to locate a third ego one who speaks of the goals of his investigation, the obstacles encountered, its results, and the problems yet to be solved. And this I would function in the field of existing or future mathematical discourses. So one way to think of this, and existentialism is uh, credited with also being the basis for psychoanalysis. So this is kind of like, an id, ego, and superego of authorship to these three levels of authorship. And again, Sartre is the one that sort of starts this conversation back in his Transcendence of the Ego, and I don't have notes on that text in front of me, so I couldn't tell you when it was originally written off the top of my head. We are not dealing with a system of dependencies where a first and essential use of the I is reduplicated as a kind of fiction by the other two. On the contrary, the author function in such discourses operates so as to affect the simultaneous dispersion of the three egos. Further elaboration would, of course, disclose other characteristics of the author function but I have limited myself to the four that seemed the most obvious and important. They can be summarized in the following manner. The author function is tied to the legal and institutional systems that circumscribe, determine, and articulate the realm of discourses, universities, and institutions that produce knowledge. So this is an epistemological level. It does not operate in a uniform manner in all discourses at all times and in any given culture. It is not defined by the spontaneous attribution of a text to its creator, but through a series of precise and complex procedures. It does not refer purely and simply to an actual individual insofar as it simultaneously gives rise to a variety of egos, 
and to a series of subjective positions that individuals of any class may come to occupy. Anyone can write. Anyone can participate in authorship. Anyone can produce discourse, Foucault says. And so that is why to keep discourse pure, authorship would rather be anonymous, right? Um, there, one way to think about this and why this argument is significant is in the role of female authorship. Um, and that's one way that this essay among literary critics has been used and deployed in literary criticism. Many female poets and the great canonical female author, Jane Austen, published originally anonymously, right? Jane Austen famously was the author when her works were first published. Um, when we're trying to figure out who anonymous is, there are many women we could attribute anonymously written poetry to. Sappho and Aphra Ben are another two. Um, in some ways it doesn't matter, but we know that the discourse existed and we use the brilliance of that poetry as a way to authenticate the struggle that female authors had in relation to male authors of the time period to get their works published, right? The anonymous label had to be used because women weren't allowed to be authors or a masculine name had to be used. And then we uncovered the identity of the female author through historical research later on, right? The case of the Bronte sisters is one example of that phenomenon. And so the author serves an important function if we wanna know about the individuals and the history, but can insert certain impurities to thought and true interpretation when looking at discourse as a whole. This is a tension that still exists and continues to cause interpretive problems in literature and popular culture and art and film. I am aware that until now, I have kept my subject within unjustifiable limits. I should also have spoken of the author function in painting, music, technical fields, and so forth. Admitting that my analysis is restricted to the domain of discourse, it seems that I have given the term author an excessively narrow meaning. I have discussed the author only in the limited sense of a person to whom the production of a text, a book, or a work can be legitimately attributed. However, it is obvious that even within the realm of discourse, a person can be the author of much more than a book, of a theory, for instance, of a tradition or a discipline within which new books and authors can proliferate. For convenience, we could say that such authors occupy a trans-discursive position. So this is a defense 
for the need for something like a canon. Someone who was the father or mother of something, the founding members of a literary tradition. We say that Wolf helped to found literary modernism, for example, because of her role having founded the Hogarth Press. Um, she became one of the most influential figures in the modernist era due to her position in the print public sphere. Homer, Aristotle, and the church fathers played this role, as did the first mathematicians and the originators of the Hippocratic tradition. This type of author is surely as old as our civilization. But I believe that the 19th century in Europe produced a single type of author who should not be confused with great literary authors or the authors of canonical religious texts and the founders of the sciences. Somewhat arbitrarily, we might call them initiators of discursive practices. The distinctive contribution of these authors is that they produced not only their own work, but the possibility and the rules of formation of other texts. In this sense, their role differs entirely from that of a novelist, for example, who is basically never more than the author of his own text. For the purposes of giving literary modernist examples, Virginia Woolf, from a feminist literature standpoint and from the standpoint of someone who was able to, through her press, dictate some of the rules of what classified modernist literature being publishable, right, um, was this transdiscursive figure, um, it's sort of British, uh, British literature. And then from an American perspective, um, Walt Whitman uh, was a figure who, through his Leaves of Grass and his very public um, use of himself as authorial janitor, um, became the father of modernist poetry as we know it in America and in many cases in British as well. He's kind of a transatlantic figure of acclaim. So Virginia Woolf and Walt Whitman are two transdiscursive figures in modernist literature. Foucault uses Freud as an example. Freud is not simply the author of the interpretation of dreams or of wit and its relation to the unconscious. And Marx is not simply the author of the Communist Manifesto or Capital. They both established the endless possibility of discourse. Obviously, an easy objection can be made. The author of a novel may be responsible for more than his own text. If he acquires some importance in the literary world, his influence can have significant ramifications. To take a very simple example, 
One could say that Anne Radcliffe did not simply write The Mysteries of Udolpho and a few other novels, but also made possible the appearance of Gothic romances at the beginning of the 19th century. To this extent, her function as an author exceeds the limits of her work. However, this objection can be answered by the fact that the possibilities disclosed by the initiators of discursive practices, using the examples of Marx and Freud, whom I believe to be the first and the most important, are significantly different from those suggested by novelists. The novels of Anne Radcliffe put into circulation a certain number of resemblances and analogies patterned on her work. Various characteristic signs, figures, relationships, and structures that could be integrated into other books. In short, to say that Anne Radcliffe created the Gothic romance means that there are certain elements common to her works and to the 19th century Gothic romance the heroine ruined by her own innocence, the secret fortress that functions as a counter city, the outlaw hero who swears revenge on the world that has cursed him, etc. On the other hand, Marx and Freud, as initiators of discursive practices, not only made possible a certain number of analogies that could be adopted by future texts, but as importantly, they also made possible a certain number of differences. They cleared a space for the introduction of elements other than their own, which nevertheless remain within the field of discourse they initiated. In saying that Freud founded psychoanalysis, we do not simply mean that the concept of libido or the techniques of dream analysis reappear in the writings of Carl Abraham or Melanie Klein, but that he made possible a certain number of differences with respect to his books concepts, and hypotheses, which all arise out of psychoanalytic discourse. Is this not the case, however, with the founder of any new science or of any author who successfully transforms an existing science? After all, Galileo is indirectly responsible for the texts of physics who mechanically applied the laws he formulated, in addition to having paved the way for the production of statements far different from his own. If Cuvier is the founder of biology and Saussure of linguistics, it is not because they were imitated or that an organic concept or a theory of the sign was uncritically integrated into new texts but because Cuvier, to a certain extent, made possible a theory of evolution diametrically opposed to his own system, and because Saussure made possible a generative grammar radically different from his own structural analysis. Superficially, then, the initiation of discursive practices appears similar to the founding of any scientific endeavor but I believe there is a fundamental difference. In a scientific program, the founding act is on an equal footing with its future transformations. It is merely one among the many modifications that it makes possible. 
this interdependence can take several forms. In the future development of a science, the founding act may appear as little more than a single instance of a more general phenomenon that has been discovered. It might be questioned in retrospect for being too intuitive or empirical and submitted to the rigors of new theoretical operations in order to situate it in a formal domain. Finally, it might be thought a hasty generalization whose validity should be restricted. In other words, the founding act of a science can always be rechanneled through the machinery of transformations it has instituted. On the other hand, the initiation of a discursive practice is heterogeneous to its ulterior transformations. To extend psychoanalytic practice as initiated by Freud is not to presume a formal generality that was not claimed at the outset. It is to explore a number of possible applications. To limit it is to isolate in the original texts a small set of propositions or statements that are recognized as having an inaugurative value and that mark other Freudian concepts or theories as derivative. Finally, there are no false statements in the work of these initiators. Those statements considered inessential or prehistoric in that they are associated with another discourse are simply neglected in favor of the more pertinent aspects of the work. The initiation of discursive practices, unlike the founding of a science, overshadows and is necessarily detached from its later developments and transformations. As a consequence, we define the theoretical validity of a statement with respect to the work of the initiator. Whereas in the case of Galileo or Newton, it is based on the structural and intrinsic norms established in cosmology or physics. Stated schematically, the work of these initiators is not situated in relation to a science or in the space it defines. Rather, it is science or discursive practice that relate their works as the primary points of reference. So this is a kind of defense of the canon, whereby we can say that reading the works of writers such as Virginia Woolf and James Joyce, for example, are the primary indicators of what modernist literature par excellence looks like. Um, on the American side of things, we have Walt Whitman, we have F. Scott Fitzgerald, uh, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, I would say, is a canonical modernist uh, founding member on the American side. Um, so those are uh, the figures that I like to work with in my classes and in my work when I'm thinking of this uh, author function. Here as well, it is necessary to distinguish a return from scientific rediscoveries or reactivations. Rediscoveries are the effects of analogy or isomorphism with current forms of knowledge that allow the perception of forgotten or obscured figures. 
For instance, Chomsky, in his book on Cartesian grammar, rediscovered a form of knowledge that had been in use from Cordemoy to Humboldt. It could only be understood from the perspective of generative grammar because this later manifestation held the key to its construction, in effect, a retrospective codification of an historical position. Reactivation refers to something quite different, the insertion of discourse into totally new domains of generalization, practice, and transformations. The history of mathematics abounds in examples of this phenomenon as the work of Michael Sayers on mathematical amnesia shows. Nisus, sorry. The phrase return to designates a movement with its proper specificity, which characterizes the initiation of discursive practices. If we return, it is because of a basic and constructive omission, an omission that is not the result of accident or incomprehension. In effect, the act of initiation is such in its essence that it is inevitably subjected to its own distortions. That which displays this act and derives from it is at the same time the root of its divergence and travesties. This non-accidental omission must be regulated by precise operations that can be situated, analyzed, and reduced in a return to the act of initiation. The barrier imposed by omission was not added from the outset, it arises from the discursive practice in question, which gives it its law. Both the cause of the barrier and the means for its removal, this omission, also responsible for the obstacles that prevent returning to the act of initiation, can only be resolved by a return. In addition, it is always a return to a text in itself, specifically to a primary and unadorned text with particular attention to those things registered in the interstices of the text, its gaps and absences. We return to those empty spaces that have been masked by omission or concealed in a false and misleading plenitude. In these rediscoveries of an essential lack we find the oscillation of two characteristic responses. This point was made. You can't help seeing it if you know how to read. Or inversely, no, that point is not made in any of the printed words in the text, but it is expressed through the words in their relationship and in the distance that separates them. It follows naturally that this return which is a part of the discursive mechanism, constantly introduces modifications and that the return to a text is not a historical supplement that would come to fix itself upon the primary discursivity and redouble it in the form of an ornament which, after all, is not essential. Rather, it is an effective and necessary means of transforming discursive practice. A study of Galileo's works could alter our, our knowledge of the history, but not the science, of mechanics, whereas a re-examination of the books of Freud or Marx can transform our understanding of psych psychoanalysis or Marxism.
So Freud, he, uh, sorry, Foucault here is talking about interpretation in terms of the dangers of tradition or the dangers of relying on traditional interpretations, saying that discourse can and should change over time. So in literary discourse, this essay has been used to push back on the canon to introduce new authors who we could identify as fitting into that canon, and rightly so. But one way that I think this essay could and should be used is to encourage deeper considerations of pre-canonical texts and already canonical authors that examine the gaps within those writers so that we might enhance and further our thinking about those authors specifically related to their continued impact and influence on the genres they are transdiscursive authors of and the field, the science of literary criticism as a whole. And what I love about this essay is how Foucault breaks this down in a very scientific way. He talks about a discursive science behind critical interpretation of a discursive text. And that really is what literary theory and criticism and close reading of literary material is all about. A last feature of these returns is that they tend to reinforce the enigmatic link between an author and his works. A text has an inaugurative value precisely because it is the work of a particular author, and our returns are conditioned by this knowledge. The rediscovery of an unknown text by Newton or Cantor will not modify classical cosmology or group theory. At most, it will change our appreciation of their historical genesis. Bringing to light, however, an outline of psychoanalysis to the extent that we recognize it as a book by Freud can transform not only our historical knowledge, but the field of psychoanalytic theory. If only through a shift of accent or of the center of gravity. These returns, an important component of discursive practices, form a relationship between fundamental and mediate authors, which is not identical to that which links an ordinary text to its immediate author. These remarks concerning the initiation of discursive practices have been extremely schematic, especially with regard to the opposition I have traced, tried to trace between this initiation and the founding of sciences. The distinction between the two is not readily discernible. Moreover, there is no proof that the two procedures are mutually exclusive. My only purpose in setting up this opposition, however, was to show that the author function sufficiently complex at the level of a book or a series of texts that bear a definite signature 
has other determining factors when analyzed in terms of larger entities, groups of works, or entire disciplines. Unfortunately, there is a decided absence of positive propositions in this essay as it applies to analytic procedures or directions for future research. But I ought at least to give the reasons why I attach such importance to a continuation of this work. Developing a similar analysis could provide the basis for a typology of discourse. A typology of this sort cannot be adequately understood in relation to the grammatical features, formal structures, and objects of discourse because there undoubtedly exist specific discursive properties or relationships that are irreducible to the rules of grammar and logic and to the laws that govern objects. These properties require investigation if we hope to distinguish the larger categories of discourse. The different forms of relationships or non-relationships that an author can assume are evidently one of these discursive properties. So here, Foucault is saying, again, he loves to equivocate for himself in his writing to leave room for future research, both by himself and others. Um, I see this principle. This principle exists. I've worked to prove thematically that this is true, but I don't really know where to go with it. And it's not really my project right now. So here you go do with it what you will, encouraging a continuation of the discourse itself. And in that way, he was successful. He did succeed in influencing post-structuralist literary criticism and theory quite a bit. Um, and I'm proposing, I think this, at Le Foucault now, uh, we read him more as a biopolitical thinker, and of course I do as well. Um, but we discount this essay, I think, in, unfortunately, in certain fields. Um, and I think thinking really closely and strongly about what Foucault is meaning and intending us to do with this essay, um, specifically in the fields of philosophy and literary criticism, humanism, the humanities, um, it's important to take a closer look at it now, and I advocate for taking a closer look at it through modernist literature because modernist literature um, really works towards putting the principles of philosophical humanism to practice in the way that they display uh, the human condition in writing. This form of investigation might also permit the introduction of an historical analysis of discourse. Perhaps the time has come to study not only the expressive value and formal transformations of discourse, but its mode of existence, the modifications and variations within any culture of modes of circulation, valorization, attribution, and appropriation partially at the expense of themes and concepts that an author places in his work. The author function could also reveal the manner in which discourse is articulated on the basis of social relationships. 
it is not possible, is it not possible to re-examine a legitimate extension of this kind of analysis, the privileges of the subject? Clearly, in undertaking an internal and architectonic analysis of a work, whether it be a literary text, a philosophical system, or a scientific work, and in delimiting psychological and biographical references, suspicions arise concerning the absolute nature and creative role of the subject. But the subject should not be entirely abandoned. It should be reconsidered not to restore the theme of an originating subject, but to seize its functions, its intervention in discourse, and its system of dependencies. We should suspend the typical questions. How does a free subject penetrate the density of things and endow them with meaning? How does it accomplish its design by animating the rules of discourse from within? Rather, we should ask, under what conditions and through what forms can an entity like the subject appear in the order of discourse? What position does it occupy? What functions does it exhibit? And what rules does it follow in each type of discourse? In short, the subject and its substitutes may be stripped of its creative role and analyzed as a complex and variable function of discourse. The author, or what I have called the author function, is undoubtedly only one of the possible specifications of the subject, and considering past historical transformations, it appears that the form, the complexity, and even the existence of this function are far from immutable. We can easily imagine a culture where discourse would circulate without any need for an author. Discourses, whatever their status, form, or value, and regardless of our, our manner of handling them, would unfold in a pervasive anonymity. No longer the tiresome repetitions, who is the real author? Have we proof of his authenticity and originality? What has he revealed of his most profound self in his language? New questions will be heard. What are the modes of existence of this discourse? Where does it come from? How is it circulated? Who controls it? What placements are determined for possible subjects? Who can fill these diverse functions of the subject? Behind all these questions, we would hear little more than the murmur of indifference. What matter? Who is speaking? So, in this dramatic ending to this lecture, Foucault is asking a series of several rhetorical questions that he is encouraging historians of science, philosophy, literature um, to ask of canonical discursive movements. And for a long time in literary criticism, coming out of the 80s and 90s, Foucault was one of the most influential figures. And that era really focused on literary modernism. We moved into a realm of postmodern critique uh, where things like 
critical theory, critical race theory, post-colonial theory, very important theoretical pursuits came to place pressure on private and public life globally. And in some ways, I think to a detriment of discourse, modernism and postmodernism get separated. Um, postmodern critique and modern critique. There's this false dichotomy. I think it's important to study the trajectory um, and the history of how things have evolved so that we can go back and fill in gaps where our thinking might be limited. So when we moved into post-colonial theory and criticism, we moved away from studying the canon in some ways. Um, and I propose a movement back, a re-examination of the, the canon to look for gaps, to reevaluate our thinking. Um, and these, the, the canonical texts are so incredibly well written that the formulas in place for examining literature just fit so well in them. They're very philosophical texts. Um, they under, the writers understood the human condition so much that the texts have some a kind of universal applicability, and that is what makes them worthy of study and discussion. So there is some kind of hierarchical thinking attributed to going back through the canon, but I do so with an idea that I want diverse representations of the canon. So when the canon was first established, for instance, uh, there was discrimination against authors for race, class, gender, and sexuality. But in the years since this very influential essay was written, we have opened up the doors of the literary canon to include a much more diverse set of authors, even from very early time periods. And so my reevaluation of the canon isn't just to be kind of crude, the dead old white men. It also includes women, persons of color, um, people of disabilities of all kinds, um, writing and representing their experiences. Um, I focus a lot on the history of mental health as it corresponds with the, the history of literature. Um, mental health and mental illness being something that historically people have been discriminated against for experiencing and also for discussing in mixed company, as it were. Um, so, yeah, I my that's the what is an author by Michel Foucault. I hope that you enjoyed it, and I hope that it does help to contextualize um, some of what I've been bringing onto the show. If you haven't yet listened to the episodes covering the Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman and Babylon Revisited by F. Scott Fitzgerald, doing so after having listened to uh, what is an author might help to contextualize some of those autobiographical problems that... Uh, I'm drawing out from what this essay is saying. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for listening, and I will 
be back soon with more modernist literature and philosophy. Thank you.